0: Be
1: great. I'm so excited to start. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, I want to wish you all a Chodesh Tov, and uh, everything should go well. So uh, we are discussing uh, the difficult issue of heart transplants, and again, I, I just want to remind you of a very, the most important idea here, and that is, if you ask the average, even Orthodox Jew, uh, why Judaism might not be in favor of organ transplants, they will typically tell you because you're not supposed to cut into a dead body, a dead body is supposed to be buried, we don't believe in cremation, we don't even believe in autopsies, so therefore you can't take an organ out of a dead body because you would be violating the mitzvot of burial and respect for the dead. That is untrue. And the reason is, if that would be the problem, Even though it's true, I mean all of the premises are true. Judaism is against cremation. Judaism is against autopsy. Judaism says you're supposed to bury all parts of the body. But in order to save a life, you can violate all those laws. So if if removal of an organ could save a person from death, that would override all of those prohibitions. Because there's only three laws that you have to give your life before you violate, right? The laws against idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. So the statement that Judaism or Halachic Judaism is against organ donation because of the laws against cremation, uh, autopsy, and the obligation of burial is not true because those laws would be superseded by pikuach nefesh, pikuach nefesh means saving a life. So the real problem of organ transplants is not that you're taking something from the dead. The real problem is, is the person dead or alive? The problem basically is the definition of death. Now, I had mentioned uh, last week, I don't want to go over all of the details, that technically, in order to be able to do a heart transplant... A medicine must rely on something that is called brain death. Now, brain death is a, is a diagnosis that indicates through physiological testing that the entire brain has been destroyed, often by, by usually by some trauma like, uh, like a motorcycle accident or a car accident. And when I say the brain is destroyed, be, be very careful, I don't mean the person is in a coma and is lacking consciousness. A person in a coma that is lacking consciousness, even if they've been in a coma for 50 years, is not brain dead, although sometimes people call them that. They are in what is called a persistent vegetative state, PBS, but their brain stem, the base of their brain that controls breathing and the like is still okay. A PBS person is both legally alive and halakhically alive. There's no question about that. If you were to remove a heart from a person in a coma, you would be arrested for murder in, every, certainly in Israel and in every state in the United States. Okay, that is not what we mean by brain death. Now, there are ethicists from a secular standpoint who say, hey, if a guy's in a coma, why don't you take his heart to save somebody else? There is such a, an argument in medical ethics, but it is not legal. It is against the law. A PVS patient is 100% alive, legally, as well as halakhically. Nobody allows the removal of an organ from a person in a coma. Brain death is different than that. Brain death is unfortunately the next step of decline. Brain death means that not only is there a lack of consciousness, which is higher mental functioning, but even the brain stem that controls the automatic processes of the body has been destroyed. As a result, when when they test for brain death, they do different things. They jab a needle into the hand or the arm and it doesn't respond. They shine a light into the pupils and the pupils do not... Uh, Dylates, right? They do not, do not uh, contract. Uh, there is no independent breathing capacity because the brain stem controls the lungs. So there's literally no, uh, no breathing. Uh, they have various other tests as well. Uh, sometimes what they do is they inject dye, uh, radioactive dye, in the base of the skull. And uh, through uh, imaging, it can be determined that the dye doesn't travel, meaning to say the, essentially there is no, they can show there's no blood flow to the brain. As they can trace it that way uh, and if there's no blood flow to the brain by definition, uh, the brain is not alive. So that is called brain death. Okay, be sure you understand this. I, I know I've I repeated this several times. Be sure you understand the distinction between coma and brain death. Coma Pers- equals persistent vegetative state and even then there are many levels there's total unconsciousness there's in and out unconsciousness we don't need to go through the different levels even the most drastic persistent vegetative state where there's total <laughs> unconsciousness that person is still alive brain death legally, now halakhically I'll discuss that Br- legally uh, brain death, a person can be declared brain dead now, here is the thing about brain death You can take a brain-dead person. You can hitch him up to a breathing machine that is called either ventilator, respirator, different types of things. And because oxygen is coming into his system, even though it's totally by machine, you can take a dead body and even do that, the heart muscle gets oxygen and it continues to pump blood. Well, well, you can't after a while because the heart muscle deteriorates. But, but, but uh, yeah, 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 that's correct. Because the reason is the heart has its <laughs> own independent pacemaker that is not controlled by the brain. That means to say, as long as the heart muscle gets oxygen, even if the oxygen is coming from a machine, the heart can pump for a while, now, not forever. It's like, it's like an emergency generator. Emergency generators, when you have a power uh, outage, can only go for a certain amount of time. So the heart's pacemaker, without input from the brain, can only go for around six months. So a person cannot be brain dead for more than six months. What's, what's going to happen is the heart will have cardiac arrest. But for six months, the person can have a totally destroyed brain. The oxygen is being supplied... Mechanically, and because the heartbeat the heart is pumping, the heart muscle remains the heart muscle remains alive. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about all of this. I'll talk about all of this. So those are the people from whom we take hearts. You see, if we wait if we would wait until the heart stopped working, the heart mm. muscle would deteriorate. But we don't take hearts from people whose hearts have stopped. But we don't take heart, right, take two extremes. We don't take hearts from people in comas, because they're alive, that would be murder. We don't take hearts from people whose hearts have stopped beating, because within a few minutes, the heart muscle would deteriorate. We take hearts from people who are brain dead, but the heart is beating through the oxygenation that is provided by ventilators and respirators. These patients are called brain dead and they are the source of the organs that we take for heart transplantation and the like. Uh, that, is, uh, that is a non-disputable fact that uh, brain dead people who are respirator dependents are the source of hearts because if you waited, if you waited until cardiac arrest the heart muscle would deteriorate almost immediately. Now, in the United States and even in Israel, and most European countries, if a person has been declared brain dead, they are ha- they are legally dead, legally dead. So now, the big question that a religious Jew has to ask is: According to halacha, is a person dead? when there's a brain death diagnosis now this is going to be very important if according to halacha a brain dead person whose heart is beating is alive removal of the organ would be murder no matter what secular law says so you can't kill even a, a brain dead person if he's alive to save another person If, on the other hand, halacha recognizes brain death as death, then when you're taking out a heart, all you're doing is cutting into a corpse. Cutting into a corpse to save a life is going to be permitted. And not only that, it may even be a mitzvah. So the big issue about heart transplants is not cremation, autopsy, cutting into a dead body. If that would be the issue, you would do it. The issue is, is a brain-dead organ donor halachically alive or halachically dead. If they are halachically alive, you are murdering one person to save another person. Can't do that. Even if the other person could live for 20 years and this person is, you know, brain dead, if they're alive, you cannot kill them to save another person. If, on the other hand, halacha recognizes brain death, then a brain dead person is, is a corpse. If he's a corpse, you can cut into him to save a life. Right, so this is the problem with heart transplants. Does halakha recognize brain death? Now, as I mentioned, if you were to ask a mystic, so to speak, a makubo, when is a person dead? The answer would be when the Nishama leaves the goof. Okay, person's dead. That's fine. But that's not going to help you very much because, yes, that is, the, that is truly when death occurs. But the only way we can measure it is by physical ways. We cannot tell when a neshama leaves a goof. We can only look at various physical signs that would indicate this. So here is the question. Is life indicated by breathing or is life indicated by heartbeat? If life would be indicated by breathing then a brain dead person no longer has respiratory capacity because the brain stem is destroyed and the oxygen is simply coming in by machine. So then we would say the person is dead. If on the other hand, life is based on circulation of blood, a brain dead person actually has natural heartbeat. This is important. The breathing is from a machine. The heart is pumping on its own pacemaker and the circulation of blood is natural. So, as is always the case, uh, the short answer is machlokas. Let me just give you some of the proofs on both sides of this. Uh, first, from the chumash. Let me give you two contradictory proofs from the chumash itself. And that is, when Hashem created, and I know in your Hasidic uh, classes you probably went through all of this, when Hashem created Adam, so it says, "Va'yipach b'yapa. He breathed into him nishmas chayim, the soul of life. And it was through the breath of Hashem that Adam became nefesh chaya. Nefesh chaya means a living soul. Uh, And of course the Alter Rebbe, the Baal Tanya, goes into a great length in the uh, Shaar Hemunah, uh, uh, Yichud Ve'emunah, the second part of the Tanya, where he makes the point that this is very unique everything in the universe was created by Hashem's speech Hashem spoke and there was light Hashem spoke and there was uh, animals only the human being Hashem breathed into the human being that's very unique no other creature was made by Hashem's breath everything was only made by Hashem's speech what is the significance of Hashem's breath. So the Alter Rebbe quotes the Zohar, that when you breathe into somebody, you are breathing, like a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, you are breathing into them your life force. And that is the source of the idea that our godly soul is is an actual portion of the divine essence. And what that means exactly is obviously very, very complicated. But God breathed his very essence into us. That is not the same for animals or for inanimate objects or or the light. Okay, now that's very important philosophically, Kabbalistically, in Hasidus, very, very important. But some say it also has halachic ramifications. And the halachic ramifications are that if what made us live was breath, neshima, then the inability of breathing, the ability to take in air, which is indicated by brain stem death, in which there is 100% destruction of the ability of respiration, would indicate that the person is dead because there is no longer anishima. That would be the proof in favor, in favor, I'm gonna give you proofs on both sides of it. That would be the proof in favor of a halachic understanding of brainstem death, that death is defined by inability to, to uh, breathe at a 100% level. Now, a counterproof, a counterproof, a proof in the other direction, is in Parshas Acharemos, in Leviticus, in Vayikra, the Torah gives you prohibitions against the eating blood. Right? Jews don't eat blood. So, the reason why we don't eat blood, it says, ki hadam hu ha nefesh. Blood represents the life force of a human being. And since life, so to speak, belongs to God, we're not allowed to appropriate life and, and for our own personal pleasure. Yeah, ki hadam, this is part of a pasach, uh, ki hadam, Hu ha Blood is the life force. In fact, this is an interesting perspective. You know, if you ask many Jews, why are Jews not allowed to eat blood? So they'll tell you something like, oh, because it's so disgusting and yucky. Well, maybe so, but, but really the Torah gives the other reason. Blood is almost sacred. Blood represents life. And we are not supposed to take what represents life, because God is the owner of life. So, in some ways, it's almost as if blood is holy, which is why, for korbanos sacrifices, there's so much service that you do with the blood. So, blood is not like chazer. I could say, don't eat pig, because pig is repulsive. Pig is, you know, uh, spiritually inferior or bad. Blood is the other way around. Blood is actually a certain holiness to blood. Because blood represents the life of of either humans or animals. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that
1: that's a good question because obviously, obviously, uh, you know, the Torah, the Torah permits, uh, with respect to the vegetarian agenda, the Torah does permit killing animals uh, for consumption. Yes, that, that is a very good point, and of course, kabbalistically, the concept is you're actually bringing the animal to a higher level by incorporating it within a human being, within a Jew, and the like. That's why it actually says that people of low moral character should not eat meat. That actually the actually says an ignorant per- person who's ignorant of Torah shouldn't eat meat. Actually, there's such a lesson because you're not elevating the meat and the like. But still, still, it is important to understand that even though it's true that God gave us permission to take the life of an animal for human consumption, but by showing reverence for the life force, that just reminds us not to take this in a light way, to take it very, very seriously, and therefore only use meat for mitzvos, like honoring Shabbos or having strength to serve God and the like. So there is a symbolic uh, purpose in keeping away from the life, the life force. Yeah. Uh, well, well, uh, you know, we'll, well, we'll talk about it. I mean, again, Halacha has an interesting take on abortion. You know, in the secular society, uh, the debate is always are you a pro lifer or a pro choicer? Does life begin at conception or does life begin at birth? Judaism has a middle of the road position. We believe that a fetus is not a full fledged human being, it is not a separate neshama till it's born. Right. But. You're not allowed to abort most of the time because it is a potential that needs to be protected. So we have kind of a middle-of-the-road position. We do not believe life begins at conception, but we believe the potentiality of life begins at conception. And potentials are entitled to respect uh, as well. Not because of what it is, but because of what it can become. But abortion is not murder, that's the that's the point I'm making. It's it's it is a great prohibition and a great sin, but it would not have the severity of murder. We differentiate between people who are born and people who are not yet not yet born. Okay. Alrighty. So if you go with the idea going back to the heart transplant, now this brings the this is this is an opposite proof, meaning the proof of life comes from breath would indicate that when you can't breathe, you're dead. But Hadamu Anepesh, the blood is the life force, would argue the other way around. As long as there is a circulation of oxygenated blood, you are still alive. So the Chumash, we actually have two contradictory proofs that people look at. One is in Baratius, which emphasizes breathing, and the other is in Vayikra that emphasizes blood as the source of, of life. So it's hard to reconcile this, meaning to say you have contradictory proofs, uh, but it's not <coughs> obviously, in halacha we don't prove things directly from the chumash that much, we then have to go to Talmudic texts, which will carry through this debate uh, further. Yeah. Isn't Oh, so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, actually a very, very interesting point. So you want to say that maybe a brain-dead animal <laughs> might still be alive because of circulation of blood, but human beings have a unique distinction that uh, their, their spiritual life depends on respiratory capacity. That, that's an excellent, uh, excellent distinction. That, that might be a, an answer, uh, which would mean, in other words, that halacha might support brain death based on your analysis. Yeah.
0: But to respond to that, the
2: whole issue with murder is that it's human life. So yes. human life is characterized not only by blood, but also by. Uh, but meaning, what you're saying is a proof that, like, life at all, yeah. right, has to do with blood. But then the, the issue is not killing an animal, meaning you can't kill an animal.
1: Yeah, so that's the question. The question would be, would a brain-dead person... That's the intriguing question would a brain-dead person now have the status of a live animal? <laughs> that, that, I, I guess that would be the problem, meaning to say, a human, can a human be an animal? Me, meaning to say, uh, with your definition, you're saying, well, he's not a human anymore, but he's still an animal. But if he's an animal, that means he is alive on that level. That would that, be the question, really. Can you, can you possibly demote a person... In a state of life, and then call them an animal—that sounds pretty. You know, pretty bad. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no. Good, good question. And the answer is no, because human beings do not chew their cud; or have split hoofs. <laughs> so, a human being is a trait. It, it, a human being is a trait animal. Oh my
0: God!
1: a well, well, well. Yeah, no. That's well. Yes, that's for sure because he was he was a Jew. I mean, he was a Jew. Right? He it, it didn't. It's not. Yeah. According according to that analysis, yeah. But but he was a Jew. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now,
0: let me mention.
1: Let me mention another proof that's discussed. Now, this will undermine exactly what you said. Although what you said is very very logical and it fits with what I said, but this will undermine it. This is a Mishnah in Maseches Ohalos. And I've actually mentioned uh, this tractate before when we talked a little bit about abortion. Ohalos is a very interesting tractate, very, very complex uh, tractate, which deals with all of the laws of uh, dead corpses transmitting impurity. Remember, we, I think we talked about this uh, just as an aside, that tuma, tuma is the impurity of a dead body. Most of us, it's not a big problem because we're allowed to become Tame, so we can walk into cemeteries and there's no problem. But if you're a Kohen, a male Kohen, that's a big problem. And when there's a base on mitosh, really it's a problem for everybody because uh, people who are tame cannot go in the Temple Mount. Even today, that issue is there and you couldn't go to the Temple. You could, if you're a Kohen, you couldn't eat truma. Uh, you couldn't eat sacrifices. Now, the thing about the Tuma of a dead body is that it gets transferred in many complicated ways. Obviously, if you touch a dead body, you know that's for sure, but even if you're under the same roof, you become tamé, and uh, even if the mace is in a different room, if there are vents that connect the rooms, for example, let's imagine there would be a dead body in the office, and we're here. You're not in the same room, but if there's some common vent through the walls that joins the rooms, the Tuma kind of travels from one room to another room via the vents and via the openings, yeah, something like an opening like that, or, or, or the like. So the Mishnah deals, it's a very, very complicated, technical uh, maseches, about how Tuma travels, like miasmas, how it travels. It's kind of like infectious diseases, how they travel all over the place and, and the like. But in the beginning of the tractate, it discusses the status of dead animals. Now, just to give you a point of information, there's a distinction between dead humans and dead animals. A dead human, a dead co- corpse, if I touch or I'm under the same roof as a dead corpse, I am tamei for seven days, seven days, and I need to be, s- huh, if I either touch it, yeah, touch it, or I'm uh, under the same roof, or I'm in a cemetery, I'm Tomei for seven days, and I have to get purified with the whole ceremony of the ashes of the red heifer, which we don't have today. Okay. Now, if I touch a dead animal, I am tamay for only one day, and, a ko- and all I have to do is go to the mikveh. I don't have to have the sprinkling of the red heifer. And a kohen has no prohibition of getting tamay with a dead animal. Now, question. I just said... If I touch a dead animal, I'm tummy. Well, what about eating meat? When you eat meat, you're eating a dead animal. Ah, so here's the answer. The answer is, an animal that is shechted does not convey impurity. So when I say dead animal, I either mean a dead, non-kosher animal or uh, even a kosher animal that was not slaughtered, roadkill or it was shot or whatever it is. Okay, so uh, the Tuma of a, of, a, of a corpse is much more severe than the Tuma of a dead animal, dead non-kosher animal, or an animal that wasn't shechted. Why is that so? So here there's, there's an important concept in tumah. it's not really our topic, and that is, the greater the holiness in life, the greater the impurity in death. It correlates that way exactly because Tuma is a function of the vacuum that is created when holiness leaves the world and you're left only with what's called the klipa, the outer husk, the outer shell. So consequently, a human that has so much potential for holiness, the godly soul, when that godly soul is vacated, the void is enormous and the Tuma is very, very severe. For a dead animal, there's less of, a, of an emptiness. The tuma is less. For rocks and plants, there is no tuma at all because uh, there wasn't that much of a holiness that was there. And in fact, in halakha, by the way, even the corpse of a Jew is actually more severe than the corpse of a non-Jew. But both of them convey tuma, but the corpse of a Jew conveys tuma in more ways than the corpse of a, of a non-Jew. So, for example, a Kohen might be allowed to go into a non-Jewish cemetery, even though a Kohen could not go into a Jewish cemetery. Again, it goes with the same idea. The greater the holiness, the greater the impurity. Okay. Uh, but be as it may, be sure you understand that regular kosher meat does not convey any type of impurity. Yeah? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so, so this is interesting. It's, it's, not, it's not a physical concept of the germs entering, meaning um, even if the airflow is all in one direction, if there is a physical opening, spiritually the tumour gets transferred. So it, 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 it's not like germs or something like that. I mean, I was using it as an analogy, but it doesn't work in the same way. Okay, yeah, do you want to say? Uh, yeah. No, the reason is, if you're eating kosher meat, that means the animal was slaughtered. So the halakha, it just happens to be the halakha, that slaughtering does two things. Slaughtering allows you to eat the, eat the meat, and slaughtering removes the impurity that would otherwise attach. So any meat that was kosher and slaughtered does not convey impurity. So the rule that dead animals convey impurity is either a non-kosher animal, like a dog, a dead dog, or a dead cat, or a dead bird, or uh, even a kosher animal that, that was not slaughtered, like a roadkill. That that's correct. I, I mean, I mean, the truth is, the sin of eating non-kosher is a worse, <laughs> is a bigger avera than becoming tamei. But you are correct. There is a secondary effect that you happen to be tamei as well, but only for one day. Uh, yeah. Is the uh,
2: effect of like, tamei from animal relevant
1: nowadays? You only. Know... No, actually, actually, it is because I mean, it's not so relevant. Uh, a person that is tummy from an animal is not allowed to enter the Temple Mount. Now, it's not so important today because if you've ever been in a cemetery, you have that Tuma there. But theoretically, let's say are you have...
0: You all, are you all in all like, so-called like
2: this level Mashiach? Mm-hmm.
1: That's correct. So therefore it's not relevant. That, that's correct. But that's because we, we don't have the Parah tuma. But let's say when Mashiach comes is a good example. So if you've been in a cemetery, you can be purified from uh, with the red heifer. But if you then touch a dead animal, you will not be allowed to go to the base of Mikdash for one day. So today, it really makes no difference because you're already tamei ahead of time. And a kohen has no prohibition. A kohen's prohibition is only to come in contact with human corpses. A kohen is allowed to move a dead dog or whatever it would be that would that would be. no, no, every, no, no. everybody can. I, I mean to say that even the Kohen, who, yeah, of course everybody can do it, but even the Kohen who is not allowed to become Tome to a human corpse is allowed to become Tome to an animal corpse. Uh, yeah? It's, sorry, I left another question. Um,
0: yeah, okay, I'll get you, yeah. If a Kohen, like, like, who's, if the Kohen's
1: standing outside of the room,
2: like yeah. a dead Jewish body, yeah. and the
0: lever is post- the yep. It doesn't it yeah,
1: there are three. There are three ways Tuma is transferred. One is directly touching. The other is being under the same roof, or or via a connection. And the third is moving it. So it depends. If he just pratted it with a stick, and he didn't move it, uh, then then it would be would not be conveyed. But if he pushed it, if it if it if the body actually moved even an inch. That is a, a, a way of conveying to So
0: it's
1: uh, it it's it, it, yeah, yeah, I understand. You know but it's there seems to be there there seems to be the need for a actual movement away. Meaning the body is not occupying the same position it was occupying. Yeah.
0: what would happen if animal slaughtered on the temple
1: Okay, so uh, okay, so that, that's an excellent problem. Uh, if an animal was slaughtered incorrectly in the Temple Mount, it is now Tomei, and it must be removed from the Temple Mount as soon as possible uh, because you're not allowed to have Tomei things on the Temple Mount. Well, it all depends. R- remember that, unlike a corpse, which makes your tummy if you're under the same roof, the Tuma of dead animals is only if you directly touch and it. No. so any Kohen who did not touch the dead animal has no problem the Kohen that touched the dead animal must leave and the dead animal must be removed uh, because it is now Tame and you cannot have tumah in the Temple Mount but the other Kohanim are not Tame even if they were in the same building because the idea of the same roof conveying impurity is only human uh, corpse and not animal corpse yeah. what about that? Yes, they are, uh, but once again, uh, they are—they are always tummy. That's exactly the situation. But the concept is they're doing such a, an important, wonderful mitzvah that uh, this is what they're supposed to do. Some people have that job, and that's a great, great, uh, noble, and holy job. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good question. But the Gemara says the following language: uh, Torah is so holy that it is not susceptible to impurity. In other words, uh, it is like God. The Torah is... Whatever this means, these these are things we don't really understand either, but it says, the Torah, God, and Israel are one. You've heard that, that statement? This is from the Zohar. There is a unity between Torah, God, and Israel. Now, Torah and God is one actually makes sense because God is an indivisible unity. So God's will and God's essence are the same... Unlike a human being, all right? I have a me, and I have a will. So my will is separate than me, right? I have a will. With Hashem, it's not that way. Hashem cannot be divided into pieces. So God does not have a will, but the will and the willer, if there's such a word, are the same. Therefore, the Torah, which is God's will, is God. But you know, again, these are the Rambam himself says these are things that we don't really understand, but we can say the words. Therefore, since God cannot be contaminated by any impurity, the Torah cannot be contaminated by any impurity. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So that that's a good point. So they're 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 a bit stricter with the with the impurity of a woman in Nida, meaning if you're Tomei because of uh, dead bodies, there's no question you can touch the Torah, and all of us are in that situation. But some people are strict. Not everybody. Some people are strict that when a woman has her menstruation, she should not uh, even look at some. Some say not even look at the Torah. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, the only reason they say that is because we can't tell uh, as a woman, Anita woman, not Anita. But there is no, there is absolutely no prohibition. Well, I mean, put it this way. A single woman is by definition Anita. Because if you had, if you had your period at whatever age, and you didn't go to the mikvah yet, you remain...
0: Huh?
1: No, but that's not that but that's not us Again, again, a Kohen is not usher in Altum. A Kohen is only usher in corpse, dead human corpses. He doesn't
0: know
1: uh, well, uh no. I, I mean uh, if, if he comes in contact with Anita, he couldn't do the service in the temple till uh until he becomes Torah, but but that would not there's no a vera in him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes he would. Yes he would. So that's that's nice. It does, but, but it doesn't pass the impurity that is prohibited for a koei. In other words, you have to differentiate. Anybody becomes tame, uh, a man a man or a woman, uh, if you touch a nida, but there's no prohibition in doing that. I mean, well, I mean, okay, it's complicated. I mean, there are prohibitions of nida, but those are sexual prohibitions. But there's no prohibition of becoming tame that way. So if your sister uh, touches you when you're a nida, she may become Tame, but there's no avera that's being done in that in that process. That yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. Wait, so they can. So women in
1: nida can touch the Torah? Or? No, no. So, 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 so the, the ramah brings that it's it's customary that women in nida do not touch the Torah. Uh,
0: so yeah.
1: So in spite of that fact, they differentiate. They consider nida to be a little bit worse because the Tuma of Nida is connected to the sin of the tree of knowledge, etc., and therefore, uh, because it came from a sin, therefore it's a bit more of a severe type of, type of tumah. Meaning, in spite of the fact that the Torah is not susceptible to Tuma, this type of Tuma is considered to be uh, stricter. But if
0: it can become impure, then it can't become impure,
1: Yeah, so the issue is not... Okay, so, so the issue according to this is not that the Torah becomes impure... But rather, when you're in that state, you need to have a certain distance from the Torah. It's more of a distancing thing rather than a making the Torah Tomeh. You cannot make the Torah impure, that, that, that's correct. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be a certain distance because uh, it represents a certain state of, of distancing yourself. So that's I, was, I it, like, should a single
0: woman follow that
1: or not? Like, uh, You know, again, you're going to have to follow the customs of of your shul or your rav. I I don't want to tell you what you have to do, what you can't do, but uh, I think it would be customary in most uh, more religious places that if a woman kisses the Torah, she'll kiss it with a sitter. Some men do that as well, but uh, a single woman should uh, not touch the Torah directly. Now, some say that, wait a second, none of this is relevant. Because when you kiss the Torah, you're not kissing the Torah, you're kissing the mantle of the Torah. So, there you go. You don't have a problem. (laughs) In other words, the only problem you would have is if you were to touch the parchment of the Torah. And you're not doing that. So, some say, therefore, you could be lenient. Others say that we treat the mantle like the Torah itself. Yeah, well, 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 I'm saying, according to some opinions, it would be a problem. Meaning, uh, because a single woman has the status of a of a nida. Now, if it's a married woman, then it depends. Sometimes she's a nida, sometimes she's not. So that that, that would depend. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm not giving you a, a sock here. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, whenever you find yourself in a show, you should try to follow the uh, customs of the of the shul. Yeah. A
0: woman.
1: Yeah, so this is already Kabbalah, meaning to say, as far as halakha is concerned, a nida could go to a cemetery just like anyone else can go to a cemetery. There's no particular restrictions. But the Arizal, right, the great Kabbalist, the Ari, uh, did not want uh, women in a state of nida to go to the cemetery. But, but, this is important, that only applies to the days of actual menstruation. Uh, I mean, the days that a woman is discharging blood, he says she should not go to a cemetery, but the days that she's not actually menstruating, even though halakhically she's still a niddah until she goes to the mikrah, like all single women, but they, they, they would be allowed to go to a, to a cemetery. So it's not, it's not that any woman that's a niddah cannot go to a cemetery, it's only any woman that is actually having the bleeding of a period would not go to a cemetery. By the way though, the Arizal didn't like even men to go to cemeteries, it's so interesting. Have you, have you been to Tzfat? Have you been up north? So I assume you, you went to the uh, cemetery in Tzfat? They, they didn't take it? Oh. Uh, well, a lot of people go. You have, you have, I mean, it's a really famous famous cemetery. You have the Ari and Rav Yosef Caro. Really, really all sorts of great, great Kabbalists. And the Ari is one of the most visited cemeteries, uh, grave sites in Eretz Israel. And yet, it's interesting, the Arizal didn't like people going to cemeteries. He basically said, cemeteries are not holy places, and a person should uh, not spend time in cemeteries. So it's interesting that when people visit the Arizal's Kever, they're actually doing something that the Arizal didn't want people to, to do. Not the first time, <laughs> but this is, how it works. Uh, this is how it works sometimes. Yeah? Okay, so that's an interesting uh, interesting question. Uh, ideally, uh, if a Cohen dies, uh, so if, okay, if his immediate family is there, if, for example, his sons or his pa- or father is there, then they should carry him out because they are allowed, that right, a relative is allowed to become tamé, a uh, kohen can become tamé for a relative. Uh, if, on the other hand, relatives are not there, uh, the other kohanim are still allowed to take him out because he's treated as an unattended corpse uh, who doesn't have any family there and the halacha is a kohen can become tamay for that uh, so, so either way uh, he, he, could, he could be taken out you know there is uh, a, a tradition you know uh, on Yom Kippur as you know was the one day of the year when the kohen gadol went into the Kodesh Hakodashim only one day a year. And there was a tradition that if he was not righteous, he would die. And, and during the second temple, there were over 300 Kohanim Gedolim in a period of 400 years, meaning many of them died. So there's a Zohar that actually says that when the Kohen Ganel went into the Kodesh Akhtashim, they had either a rope or a chain around his leg. So if he didn't come out within a reasonable amount of time, we assumed he might have died in there, we could pull him out because we weren't allowed to go in. We, we could pull him out. So the Zohar actually says that a Kohen Gadol had to have this rope that we could take him out of the Holy of Holies if that became necessary. Uh, Lamaisa, I think halachically, that actually is very problematical uh, because when a Kohen goes into the Mikdash, He's not allowed to wear any extra garments other than his regular uniform, so a rope would be an extra garment. <laughs> so there'd be a problem whether that would be allowed. But okay, that, that's what the Zohar.
0: No, no, no. So, so many
1: Mephorshim say this idea that he died did not mean he would die in the Holy of Holies. Hashem would never desecrate the Holy of Holies. It just meant he would die before next Jom Kippur, meaning uh, he went into the Holy of Holies, he finished up, and he wouldn't he wouldn't finish the year. Not that he would die suddenly. Because they say it was not plausible that Hashem would desecrate the Holy of Holies by, by causing someone to die uh, there. Uh, but, but, but nevertheless, the Zohar does say that. The Zohar, it's not just somebody who just made up commentary. The Zohar does say there was a rope because people did die in the Holy of Holies. So apparently there's an argument how to understand the idea that the Kohen, Kohen died. Okay, all righty. All right, so all of this is digression, which is my want, uh, but the reason I'm bringing this in up is the following. The Mishnah in Masachas Oalos, before it discusses human corpse impurity, discusses animal impurity, animals that were not slaughtered, and it deals with the following problem. Let's say you decapitate an animal not, not ritually slaughtering. You decapitate it from the back of the neck. Not kosher. But even after decapitation, the animal is still convulsing, like the famous chicken without a head. right? You cut the chicken off, and you know, it's like dancing around. It'll still be on its feet for a while. So the question becomes, dead or alive, if I touch a convulsing animal that has been decapitated, Am I tame for one day? Dead or alive? Yeah. So the Mishnah says, the Mishnah lays down a rule that once there has been decapitation, the animal is halachically dead even if there is convulsive movement. Convulsions after decapitation are not a sign of life. They are simply indicative of electrical activity which is not really being coordinated as a life force. This is a Mishnah, right? This is indisputable. Now, Rabbi Moshe Tendler, who has a number of distinctions. Rabbi Moshe Tendler, number one, is a, a, a very well-known Rav in Muncie. Number two, he is a professor of biology at Yeshiva University. Uh, he has a doctorate, a doctor, Rabbi Dr. Tendler. And number three, he is the son-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. So he had a lot of access to great halachic decision-making. And Rabbi Tendler is a big, big chassid, chassid so a big proponent of hal- brain death. He says halacha recognizes brain death. And here is his argument. If you see in the Mishnah, if you see in the Mishnah that decapitation equals death, he characterizes brain death, this is a very elegant expression, as physiological decapitation. Meaning, what's the difference if the head is physically severed from the body, which is anatomical decapitation? Or, the head is attached to the body, but there's no brain that's functioning. In a sense, his argument is, when there's brain death, Brain death should be the same as and, well, he calls it physiological decapitation. And that should be the same in his book as anatomical decapitation. Anatomical is when the head is physically cut, that's the Mishnah there, and uh, brain death is when the head is not physically cut, but the brain is no longer doing anything in the body. So that would be the same. Therefore, according to Rabbi Tendler, Rabbi Tendler's position, and he's held this for many, many years, is that there is halakhically nothing wrong whatsoever with heart transplants. (coughs) And since there's nothing wrong with it, an Orthodox Jew should be happy and maybe even commanded to be an organ donor because you are saving lives And there is no prohibition because halacha recognizes brain death as death. That is Rabbi Tendler's position. And there is an organization that encourages this. This is called the Halachic Organ Donor Society. Donor Society. It's abbreviated HODS. You may check hods.org. Which goes through all of the halakhic arguments in favor of organ donation, and their main mentor, their main posek, their main decider, is Rabbi Tendler, who uses the text of the Mishnah of Oalos, which deals with anatomical decapitation. That is one side of the story. One side of the story. Yeah. So that's the, that, that's the question. Meaning the question is, that mission is dealing with animals, not people. You're 100% correct. And part of the issue is, can you extrapolate? Now, according to your argument, it should even be better. A person should even be more dead than the animal. If even the animal's dead, how much more the, the person? Uh, yeah? Okay, so let, let me address that. Now, the counter-argument is this. The counter-argument is that there are a few problems with brain death. There are things that brain death shows, and there are things that brain death does not show. Brain death, if it's properly done, shows that the person has no reflexes. It shows that the eyes do not respond to light. It shows that the person is incapable of breathing. 100%. But... Brain-dead people do have temperature. They have body temperature. Now, wait a second. What controls body temperature? Why are you 98.6? Like, what keeps you warm? It's not the circulation of blood alone. It's part of the brain called the hypothalamus. So, wait a second here. If brain-dead people are not cold, that means part of the brain must still be working, at least the hypothalamus. So, maybe brain death is not the same as decapitation. Decapitation, there's no part of the brain controlling the body. In brain death, there is. Now, other example. Brain dead women who were pregnant, we were able to bring their babies to term. So there was one case, maybe, more, maybe more, more than one case, but at least there was one case I know of. A woman was pregnant. She was in a horrific, Rahman al-San, a horrific automobile accident. Her brain was smashed. She was diagnosed as brain dead. But by keeping her on a respirator and keeping her heart beating, this was not for organ donation. This, they were able to keep the baby alive. And they delivered a baby, a live baby, a live birth. Not just from a comatose. Again, this is not a comatose woman. This was a brain-dead woman. They brought the baby alive. They, right, the baby was born alive from a woman with a clinical diagnosis of brain death. Now, one second. It doesn't seem logical that a dead body could sustain a pregnancy. If a dead body could sustain a pregnancy, I'm sorry. If a body could sustain a pregnancy, that would seem to indicate that the person is alive. So, well, well it was as they say, uh, brain death cannot last for more than six months because the cardiac arrest. So I think they kept it, uh, kept her on the respirator for three months, and uh, that brought the baby to term, a live birth. So. The two problems with brain death as a criterion for death is hypothalamus, which is temperature, and the other is bringing a baby to term. Is
0: it death? Uh,
1: well, I think it was a cesarean. <laughs> okay. But even so, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, now, third issue, third problem. you feel yeah.
0: anything?
1: No, absolutely not. Bra- brain death, you don't feel anything. You could stick them with a needle. In fact, she did. She she was not put in anesthesia. There was no need. Basically, she doesn't feel anything.
0: Yes, that just happened
1: recently, I think. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. Now, now that's that's different than this case. Uh, but but yeah, yeah, that that's correct. Yeah. 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 That was uh, that was uh, absolutely horrendous. But I I had heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Things happen, you, you know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine, but this happens this happens a lot. There are there are young kids young kids who give birth and they didn't know they were pregnant. nobody knew they were pregnant. You know, they didn't know what was going on. They were bloated, you know. It's hard to imagine, but there are people who literally uh, don't know what's going on. Of course the person in the coma obviously didn't know what was going what was going on. Now, the third, yeah, I'm sorry. Do
0: we know that
1: Okay, so that, 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 that comes to my third point. In other words, that comes to my third point. I'm going to address that right now. Now, so one problem is, is brain dead really brain dead? Number one, you have temperature. And number two, you have the ability to sustain a pregnancy. But number three is, maybe your diagnosis is wrong. Now, that's very important. Because, in theory, if the diagnosis is right, meaning the whole brain is destroyed, then there'll be no feeling, no sensation, no reflexes. But that's only if the test is right. But tests can be wrong. There can be misdiagnosis. You think there are no reflexes, you think there are no feelings. Maybe there is. I think I I mentioned last week an example, this did not involve a Jewish uh, patient, about a teenager who was in a motorcycle accident. Brain was supposedly smashed the parents agreed to donate his organs because he was brain dead so he's on a respirator so the heart is beating Right, the way it works is he's right next to the table with the other patient who's going to get the heart because they have to keep him on a respirator until the last minute otherwise the heart muscle deteriorates and what happened was as they lifted the scalpel to cut into his chest and take out his heart to give it to the person on the next table. The kid woke up. You can imagine it was like a horror movie. The kid wakes up and says, where am I? Now, does that mean that a brain-dead person can come back? No, it does not. It means there was a mistake in the diagnosis. So if you ask me the question, can a brain-dead person recover, the answer is no. If he is brain-dead, he cannot recover without a divine miracle. But, if you're asking me, have people who have been diagnosed as brain dead recovered? The answer is yes. Uh, Not because brain death is a recoverable condition. Brain death is not a recoverable condition, but there can be misdiagnoses. So because of all of these reasons, most opinions, in at least the Haredi world, the more... uh, Orthodox world, have not been in favor of heart donations because they have taken the position that it might possibly be murder. We cannot definitively say that people who are brain dead are truly dead. And if they're not truly dead, taking a heart from them might be murder. So therefore, uh, when you, if you look, if, you're, if you are interested, if you look at the Halachic Organ Donor Society, where he kind of has like hundreds of rabbis who are in favor of heart donation, uh, be aware that most of the greatest, not all, but most of the greatest post are not in favor of heart uh, donation, precisely because of all of these doubts. Now what's interesting is that even in the secular world, there are now doubts for already 30, 40, 50 years Brain death was accepted as death. If you look at recent medical research, a lot of doctors are now questioning that, meaning even in the secular world, there is some fear that in the rush to get organs, we are sometimes diagnosing people as brain dead a little bit too early when they still might have a chance of recovery. Okay, so this is kind of the halakhic debate about brain, uh,
2: death. Yeah? My question is a little bit nuanced from that. I'm yeah. just on a purely biological level. Just because a person doesn't have the ability
1: to control their body to respond to pain, do we know that they don't feel pain? <laughs> Meaning if I poke you with a needle and you don't go like that, maybe you're paralyzed. No, no, no. That's a very excellent question. And that's why... <coughs> Brain death doesn't only do that, meaning to say, ideally, brain death would involve what's called uh, nuclei scanning. As I mentioned that, that's the injection of dye Mm -hmm. to show that there's no blood flowing into the brain, and therefore there's nothing that the brain can feel because there's no blood that is giving it oxygen and life. Well, yes, but in order for the pain to register in the brain, there has to be blood, because that's to be living tissue, Uh, meaning nerves conduct the electrical impulse, but in order for the cells of the brain to register any type of feeling, there has to be circulation of blood into the brain. Well, they, they had full confidence. Now, were they right? I, I can't tell you, but... Right. Uh, but I mean, you yeah. don't have a way of really measuring. Well, well essentially, essentially, essentially what you're articulating is one of the reasons why most of our post have not been in favor of brain death. They said, number one, even in a best-case scenario, you still have temperature and the like, and second of all, how do you really know that you've measured? Do you
0: have an explanation about uh, the regulation of
1: well, it's clear that if there's regulation of temperature, the hypothalamus is still functioning. Well, brain stem is not... Well, well what, what the Rabbanot of Israel, which actually follows brain death, what they said was we really don't care because as long as respiration is destroyed, we don't care about the other functions. Which means it's not really brain death, it's really respiratory death. They're kind of they modifying that. it that way. That's what they accepted. That's what they accepted. But okay. Well, uh, are there, yeah. are there Um, I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware of it. Um, okay, so that's
2: like a chicken with its head cut off, meaning it's going to get
1: cold. That's correct. That's correct. A, t- a chicken so with the head cut pumping, off. But it's
2: not regulating its body
0: temperature.
1: Well, w- uh, well, well unless, you hit, unless you hitch the chicken to a respirator, the heart's not going to be pumping either because the heart needs oxygen. Remember that uh, the idea of the respirator is it's the respirator that gives the oxygen that allows the heart to be pumping. So, so a chicken? Around, no, it's not because of the heart. The chicken is because there's a there's still surplus electricity in the nerves. In other words, there's no there's still electricity. So uh, you're convulsing. If you ever if you ever seen... not that you should see this, if you ever see a person who got uh, executed by the electric chair. I mean, if you ever seen a movie or whatever it would be, so you'll see that you know they're uh, jumping around even though they're dead simply because they're shocked. So. Neu- neurological activity is also electricity. And therefore, even after decapitation, and there's no heartbeat, there'll be spasmodic electrical movements in limbs and, and the like. That's not life, that's just uh, spasmodic uh, movements and, and the like. Okay, so bottom line basically is this. Bottom line is, I'm not, again, I'm not giving you a slack, you have to uh, talk to whoever you talk to. If you talk to me, I'll talk to you. But the basic idea is, that according to Rabbi Tendler and the Israeli chief rabbinate, the Israeli chief rabbinate, and many modern orthodox rabbis in the United States, you know, many, and some of them are Tomidei Chachamim, they do say halacha accepts brain death as an acceptable definition of death, and therefore it is permitted and even proper to sign an organ donor card that uh, you are giving your heart for transplantation, if you are suitable for that, How, that's one side of it. However, many other poskim, including the greatest ones here in Eretz Israel, this goes back to Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach and Rav Yashev and the, uh, Rav Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer, and Rav Shmuel Vosner. I don't know if you know all these names, but these are big, uh, big people. Uh, they take the position that brain death is too uncertain to allow organ donation. Number one, even after the diagnosis of brain death, there is body temperature. Number two, even after the diagnosis of brain death, there is the ability of a woman to carry a baby. And number three, there have been many misdiagnoses of brain death, that sometimes a person comes back, and that means he wasn't brain dead to begin with, and therefore, a removal of the heart might be considered murder and therefore, we cannot allow it uh, to be uh, to be done because halacha is clear. You cannot murder one person to save another person, even if the person you're murdering is permanently unconscious and will never come out of it. So what? You cannot kill A to save B unless A is a rode, unless A is threatening B or something of that nature. Therefore, uh, most rabbis... Uh, I shouldn't say most rabbis, but most of the great, great rabbis, I think most rabbis probably do allow it, but most of the uh, rabbis who were considered to be the leaders in Pesach they do counsel against uh, heart donation. Now, let me point out that we hope Mashiach will come uh, tomorrow, of course, but, but if Chas Vashon Mashiach does not come right away, uh, and medicine continues to advance with uh, technology, uh, there may be issues in technology that may make this less of an important question. Number one, the development of an artificial heart will solve this problem, we will no longer need to rely on brain death, brain dead donors. That's number one. Number two, there are advances in organ preservation. Remember, the reason we had to use brain dead donors is because if you waited until the heart stopped beating and the person was totally dead, the heart muscle would deteriorate and that's like within five minutes. But there are technologies being developed that could keep the heart in good shape for a much longer period of time. And if that's the case, we don't need to take the heart from a beating donor. We can wait until the person's totally dead. So that's gonna be uh, a second thing that would work. A third thing that might work is the possibility of genetic modification of animal hearts, which could be very promising. And finally, the concept of cloning organ systems in which you can actually take even a skin cell from a person and kind of make it into a heart with the DNA, etc. And if that would be the case, first of all, that would solve the rejection problem because it would be my own tissue that would be given back to me. And uh, you would, in other words, the, the, the problem is you won't, you won't need to get hearts from teenage kids in motorcycle accidents. That's what I'm saying. So whether it's animal hearts, artificial hearts, well, organ preservation would still use the donors, or cloned organs... Uh, this would solve a lot of the halachic problems. So the halachic problem of organ donation may, God willing, be superseded by advances in technology, and we won't have to confront the brain dead conundrum that we presently confront. Yeah. So this is tricky because once a person dies. There is a mitzvah to bury them, but that mitzvah is superseded to save a life. So the question becomes, it depends on what the skin is going to be used for. If it's going to be used for burn victims, who without the skin graft might die, that would be permitted. If it's gonna be used for purely elective cosmetic surgery, it would not be permitted. So. So if you want to donate the skin of a person after they die, you would have to be very, very specific for the type of use that you're donating it for. Uh, you can't just thumb, uh, give it to a skin bank, and they'll use it for whatever they use it for, because it may be for non-life-saving purposes.
0: For other, other
1: persons, Basically, in other words, let me, well, corneas, corneas can be donated. Now, so here, the postcard discuss this, but they make the point that since uh, corneal transplants can help people who would otherwise be blind, so blindness is treated as a life-threatening condition, and therefore they, they, they permit it. Uh, so they do permit corneal transplants from the dead. That's about it. There's not that much you can give from uh, dead bodies because organs deteriorate. Uh, bone marrow. Bone, yeah, well, well, again, bone marrow is almost always for a life-saving purpose. So you could harvest, I mean, I mean, you don't have that much time, but you can harvest bone marrow for a short time after death, that would well, be permitted. Um, uh, lung tissue deteriorates. I mean, the internal organs deteriorate almost immediately after death, so they're not, I mean, I, I, I don't know for sure, but they're not really that salvageable, uh, maybe for a short time. But again, uh, lung transplant is almost always for life because See, skin would be the problem because skin is used for all sorts of non-life-threatening situations, so that's why you'd have a problem. But once you're going to go to lungs or other things like that, that'll almost always be for pikuach nefesh. Yeah. Blood after death? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't think it's, it's suitable, but once again, uh, the, the test is... Well, my the question is, like, of, like you know, scientists
2: and scholars, like, I don't know. Yeah. Because it would make sense otherwise we would always take blood from dead people because there's always, like, people always need more
1: blood. Yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't seem to work. I, I'm not sure why, but uh, I've never heard of even in the secular world i've never heard of taking blood from the dead i that doesn't doesn't seem to work like even vampires right only go they only get blood from alive i right? they, they think they have to have live blood right yeah Okay, so we, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, the short answer is this. The short answer is Halakha does not permit uh, active euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide that's treated as murder. Uh, halakha does say you don't have to aggressively keep people alive if they're in great pain and they're going to die very shortly. So we wouldn't have to give him chemotherapy. We wouldn't have to give him electro, uh, you know, CPR or something like that. So we do recognize what you might call passive euthanasia, not giving him things that will keep him alive, but we're not allowed to accelerate his death. Uh, so we would not be in favor of that. So that's very, very tricky, uh, because on one hand, like this, we, 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 we can withhold treatment, but we're not allowed to do something that causes him to die. So when you disconnect a respirator, or pull the plug, so the question is, is that active, because you're pulling the plug, Or is that passive because essentially he's dying because he's not getting the medical treatment? You see, semantically, that's a very difficult issue. And that highlights the idea that the distinction between passive withholding and actively killing is gonna be problematical there. So, So many people are very strict. Many people say you cannot disconnect life support even if you wouldn't have to put the person on it. Other opinions say Disconnecting life support is killing passively, not actively. Because yeah, I took him off the life support, but, but he's dying because, not because I killed him, but because he's not getting that life support, right? So you see the, the problem the problem there. So that's a big, big mach locus. Alrighty, so uh, you may know more about brain death than you wanna know, but uh, I hope at least you understand <laughs> the issues that are involved. There's a lot, I, I, I have one more issue I wanna raise, but I'll take a question, yeah. Yeah. Is there a lot
2: of weight that you put on your shoulders Yep. It is a lot of these guidelines that say there's actually
1: potential but Yep. Well I want, I want you yeah, yeah, well again, you're hundred know, percent correct, and that's why it's a practical matter if uh, when I'm you know called upon to to pass in on this, I I I have to go and err on the side of, of being strict. Now I'm Well, that's what we rabbis do. We have to make the tough we have to make the tough decisions. No <laughs> um, well it is scary and again how indeed how
0: they allow that if there's a potential the solution. think about it the other way.
1: You couldn't way. Well well, g- keep in mind here's the problem. The problem is you're playing with life and death either way you go. Meaning like this. Uh, if you say heart transplants are fine, you might be killing the person from whom you're taking the heart. That's uh, that's what your point. On the other hand, if you're going to be strict and say no heart transplants are allowed, you're condemning no, but
0: that's people you're to die. But that's,
1: that, that's correct. In other words, there is a difference between killing and yeah. letting, that, that's correct. If you had to make a choice, uh, should I kill somebody or should I let somebody else die, it's better to let somebody right. die than about to about kill somebody. So if there's that's any that's doubt that's about killing somebody, you're going to have to be strict. If there was a, if yeah. A whole
2: room of alive people, no one would ask, would turn to a live person and be like, you owe this person That's right, 100% so correct. If these people are
0: considered alive, then they should be treated the same way.
1: Yes, right. But remember, legal, legally they can, they can do it. Legally they're dead. Legally they're dead, but that doesn't mean anything allegedly. So now let me mention the final issue, which is very, very important. Let's assume, I'm sorry, yeah.
0: Or whatever
2: qualification you need to conduct a heart transplant. Um, And, you know, probably they became that not while from, based on this conversation. Let's say then they become from and they choose a rabbi, and that rabbi says heart transplants are murder, potentially. (laughs) So then they can't do heart transplants, right? That
0: is
1: correct. That is correct.
2: The chief rabbinate says it's okay, but their personal rabbi says no. That is correct.
0: So that person. Well,
1: they're, they're going to have to make a, make a, a very severe cheshvon ha right. if they're going to stay with their rabbi. I mean, uh, you, know, you, know, you, you certainly don't change rabbis because they gave you a bsak you don't like, but you know, one has to uh, think this through. Uh, yeah. Now, let me mention a final question, which is extremely important. That is, there are many Haredi Jews, not, not many, but there are Haredi Jews, really Orthodox Jews, who under no circumstances would ever agree to give a heart because they believe it's murder. But sometimes they need transplants. They need transplants. And they will put themselves on organ recipient lists, sometimes in Israel, but mainly not in Israel, mainly in either the United States or the European Union. I was going to say England, but England is Brexit, so okay. is out. But is whatever. So whether it's the UK, whether it's France, whether it's Germany, right, what well, they call it? Uh, fax Brexit, slow Brexit, and all these different things. By the way, did you see, by the way, that that new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, gave such a beautiful Hanukkah message. Did you come across? Yeah.
0: Really, really it nice. Really good. I was very,
1: very impressed uh, with his uh, Hanukkah message. But okay. Anyway, so the question is this. What's going on here? if it is my position that taking a heart from a brain-dead person is murder, if that's my halachic position, I follow my rav that way, then how can I receive a heart? Am I not an accessory? Now, granted, I'm not the murderer. I'm not putting the scalpel in the body. But I'm benefiting from what I consider to be an act of murder. So here's the question, is there any defense at all for a person who takes the halachic position that you're not allowed to remove a heart from a brain dead person because he might be alive, is there any defense to put myself on a recipient list, or is that the height of not only hypocrisy, at a minimum it's hypocrisy, but maybe it's worse, are you an accessory to an act of murder? according to your halachic view, right? And yet, and yet, I can tell you that there are religious Jews who would absolutely would never consent to donate an organ, but they are willing to receive. So is there any, any justification? So I'm gonna give you a justification which you're not gonna like, uh, because you'll still call it hypocrit- hypocritical, I will recognize that, but I, I just want to explain it to you how it works. And here is the following. In the organ donation community, demand is much greater than supply. Meaning to say many more people need organs than there are organs available for transplantation. Now I don't have the exact numbers here. Maybe you might know them. I'm gonna make up numbers. These are not true numbers. Let's imagine therefore that for every 10 Uh, recipients, or every 10 people who need an organ, there's only one heart that's available. So, here is the thing. If I am a person who needs a heart transplant, but I say I'm taking myself off the list because I believe it's murder, the murder is going to happen anyway, because if I take myself off the list, the heart will be taken from the next guy anyway, or for the next guy anyway. So here's the argument. If the murder is going to occur with me or without me, I am not causing, my decision is not causing, yeah, I, I told you you wouldn't like it. Okay. Uh, my decision is not causing, now, If it would be a one-to-one, if I'm the only person who would get the organ, and if I say no, the person's going to keep his heart until he dies. That's one thing, I wouldn't be allowed to get the organ. I'd be causing... (coughs) Ah, so here's the thing. Do you remember, uh, maybe if you ever watched uh, TV police shows or you took a course in law, uh, American law, you know that in American law there's something called the exclusionary rule. You know what the exclusionary rule The exclusionary rule is if the police search your property without a search warrant, and they didn't give you warnings anything you say maybe be used against you and they searched your car and they found the drugs they found the murder weapon you go free even though we know you're guilty we know you're guilty why do you go free because since they did something that was improper you know uh, the, the state is not allowed to benefit right that's called the exclusionary rule where they sometimes use the expression the fruit of the poisonous tree. That's the legal expression that's, that's used. Halacha doesn't have that rule. Halacha says, even if an action was totally forbidden, an action was totally improper, an action was evil, as long as you didn't cause it, you are allowed to benefit from it after the fact. Therefore, the argument goes, that if I am not responsible for the death of this person, the death is the removal of the heart, it's going to happen with me or without me. I am simply benefiting from an improper action, but I am not the facilitator. I am not the cause of this action. Some have argued I would be allowed to benefit from from an action that was immoral as long as I am not the... Causative agent of that immorality. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: No, I, I understand, but, but again, I, I, you have to put this in perspective. Meaning, as a general rule of Torah ethics, you're one hundred percent correct. But remember that this is dealing with a matter of saving a life. Meaning, meaning, we're essentially dealing with what am I allowed to do to save a life? So in that narrow, specific context, you can't cause the death of an innocent person, but you can benefit from his death if you're not the cause of the murder. Now, again, I'm not advocating this as a general rule of life. As a general rule, it would not be so. But remember, pikuach nefesh is mighty important. And for pikuach nefesh, we would allow this type of capitalism.
0: Aren't there some, like, metaphysical things happening, like, it's like, I
1: don't know, like an evil energy or...? Well, I, I hear you. I hear you. It's hard for us to measure. Again, uh, we're looking at the halakhic imperative of, of saving a life, which is very, very important. And we assume if halakha puts saving a life as very paramount, as long as you're not causing a murder, causing a murder. So that would kind of deal with the energy issue as well.
0: Yeah, I, I I I hear
1: you. Uh, but let let me give you an, an example that may may be somewhat connected to this. You know, during World War II, the Nazis conducted experimental experiments on Jews in concentration camps, and by this I mean extreme medical experiments. For example, uh, they would immerse naked bodies in freezing water, and they would measure how uh, how many minutes it took for circulation to stop. Uh, to the extremities, and they actually wrote this up in medical journals. Like it was a scientific study about uh, exposure, hypothermia, exposure to cold, etc. Now, this is, goes back to the 30s. They were writing it up like it was just like scientific, you know, experiments. I mean, it's, it's amazing that something like this could, would be published in that form. In the 1970s, there were medical researchers that unearthed these old journals. And they wanted to use the data because obviously, you know, we don't do experiments like, you know, a civilized country does not do those experiments. So the question would be, are you allowed to use, halakhic would say, are you allowed to use data that was obtained from inhumane, immoral torture of Jews or non-Jews for that matter? Now, there were many Holocaust survivors we <coughs> were still alive then, there aren't that many alive now. We just had the, the 75th anniversary of the uh, liberation of Auschwitz. Uh, but there were many Holocaust survivors who were outraged that you're taking what Nazis did to Jews and you're using it as science for your journals. But there were others who made the argument, listen, this was an evil deed, this was evil, this was awful, this was the greatest sin. <coughs> But the sin was done already. And if the sin is done already, isn't it worthwhile to try to take something good from it? Now, some people make the argument, no, evil should be so evil that we don't try to get something good from it. If you get something good from it, you're kind of putting like a stamp of hechshir, you know, stamp of approval. But this was the debate. And there were rabbis who took the position in halacha that they made this argument, when the evil deed was already done, and our use of the information is not causing any evil to be done, it is appropriate and perhaps even proper to try to benefit from it in a constructive way. So the argument with the heart transplant is, the guy is gonna be murdered with me or without me. He's gonna be killed, if you take the halakhic position that the removal of the heart is murder, if you take that position. Now, I do believe it's murder, let's say, but it's gonna happen with me or without me, so I'm just getting the benefit from something bad that happened. Right, now I understand that, you know, I understand the argument of hypocrisy, I even understand the argument, well, give the heart to another guy, that way you are saving a life, but you're not betraying your own principles. On the other hand, it's not so obvious because keeping yourself alive is also a mitzvah, and if halacha permits, that decision to be made, you can't necessarily gamble it away because you, know, you have a higher moral compass. In fact, right? <laughs> You might be guilty of suicide, not taking that hurt. Right? So it's a complicated question. I, I, I understand it makes many people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. Uh, in fact, the European Union, which is never a lover of Jews anyway, but they actually were very concerned about Jews from Israel putting themselves on organ recipient lists when they would never sign an organ donor card. So they actually made a rule in, in a lot of the European Union, you cannot be a recipient of an organ unless five years before you put your name on the list, when you were still healthy, so to speak, you signed an organ donor card. In other words, unless you have shown you were willing to give, they will not allow you to receive. Uh, and you can't do it now. Obviously, when a person needs a heart, he goes, yeah, I'll sign an organ donor card because <laughs> there's no heart I have to give. So that's why they said it had to be like a number of years uh, before uh, you became a recipient. Yeah. No, 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 no. They, they weren't that blatant, but, but it was directed to Israelis.
0: Maybe a mm, that, that's that's
1: very fascinating. In other words, by by increasing the demand you might be increasing the supply. And by increasing the supply, you might be causing a murder of somebody. That that's that's a fascinating argument. The question is, you know, how how far do you have to anticipate all of the indirect effects? But that that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, not to be like,
0: going back to that example you said about the people of the Holocaust. Yeah. I mean maybe this is a totally different concept, but um, Kind of mentioned you think, last class, the class before, um, about like the the people who wanted like ransom money. Yes. Uh, and for example, you said something like you, you shouldn't give into demand, because then this basically, like it Right. 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 Concept, right, right. Right. Is it the same? How come that's not the same concept? Like, I, I I kind of understand. Like, I I not personally, but like I feel like you wouldn't want them to die in vain, and they are already portraits so horribly, so we shouldn't <coughs> forget it. We shouldn't yeah. ignore it. Yeah. But also the same thing, like, well, if you we can use that for science, isn't the same thing? As um, okay, so so, you so, so your fear that. is
1: by yeah. legitimating the research, you might yeah. be encouraging. Them. Okay, well, it's well, you know, no, that that research. is a that is an issue. But I but I would just say to that 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 many people would say, well, listen, uh, like, it okay we're not we're not going to do human torture because we're using the Nazi. In other words, that's so far beyond. Yeah what people consider civilized, yeah. no, unlike when you're dealing with terrorists, you know, then you're yeah. afraid they'll do more terrorism. Yeah. Okay. Here, oh. I understand your analogy, but here we're not really afraid. Oh, you're using Nazi experimentation, okay. let's do more Nazi experiments. You know, it's okay. not, not so likely that's going to happen. Can that be used,
0: though? Is that still
1: used today? Well, no. It, it turned out that they, they actually saw that the data was, was worthless. Okay. So, they, so scientifically, it was not very valuable, but it was an active debate. In the 70s and the 80s. But today, like, in psychology, we use a lot of data
2: from experiments that, like, weren't
0: ethical. The yes, that
1: that's one? the famous uh, Milgram experiment. Do you know what I mean? Know there, the, there are yeah, a lot of, like, Yeah, yeah. Like that, yeah. That was the one... Do you know the Milgram experiment? It's fascinating I mean, about...
0: Yeah. That it came to use those unethical experiments.
1: Well, as I say, uh, it seems to be, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, you're allo- doesn't mean you're allowed to do it. I'm sure you understand. I'm not saying you're allowed to do you that. Do it, but based on what we said, once they're done, you know, mm-hmm. go ahead and use yeah. it.
2: When we were talking about, you're allowed to donate if it can save somebody else's life. If you're if you're dead. So can you donate your body to like doctors to do
1: research? Okay, so here yes, that's a very good question, and here we do make a very important distinction. We make a, a distinction in halacha between donation for direct therapeutic benefit to a person versus research that may yield some positive knowledge in the future. We do not permit the latter. Meaning to say, you could donate body parts to a recipient who, will, who can be extricated from a life, uh, life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. But general donation of the body to science is not, not allowed. Because that is not direct therapeutic benefit to a recipient. So we differentiate that in that way. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> But you cannot. You cannot. Yep. Yeah. I want
2: to point out for anyone in this room who ever received the polio vaccine. themselves, <laughs> that were taken from her without her consent, that her family was never compensated for. They are still fighting now. Uh, there's an amazing book that I'm going to forget the name of, but the author is Rebecca Swooch. She did a ton of research into this, and that was um, the family of Henrietta Lacks, who basically all live in poverty now in the South of the, in the United States. None of them have ever seen any compensation from the incredible, like, their
0: medical industry <laughs> research not well. in not
1: like Okay, well, listen, thank you very much. Uh, So, I guess uh, none of us should get the polio vaccine. (laughs) Have a good week. Good chodesh. Thank you.